Shut up and sit down. Um, <clears throat> interesting thing. I had my mic muted, so because I was eating some peaches, and I didn't want to come onto the air eating peaches. And I have like forty-five seconds of thirty, forty-five seconds of music, depending on which one I activate. Um, and uh, but my mic automatically turned on when the show started. <laughs> it was like rude. So anyways, um, tonight we're going to talk about um, the unreliable narrator, and I need to get my um, shit a little bigger, because damn. Anyways, um, I don't mind an unreliable narrator. We're also going to discuss mixing point of view later on, but the unreliable narrator... um, Jilly hates it. So since she has such an epically differently point of view from me, maybe I'll ask her to come on and talk about it in a minute or two. Anyways, <clears throat> I one of my favorite series is is narrated by an unreliable narrator, and that is the Amelia Peabody series by Elizabeth Peters. Um, and it took me uh, about three or four chapters into the first book before I thought, this hussy's lying to me. <laughs> it's written in first person. And um, you you find that, honestly, that Amelia isn't so much lying to to her audience as she is lying to herself. <laughs> and it's charming. It's, it, it's not meant to be um, uh, manipulative or um, horrifying or startling. It's just her personality she's she's lying to herself you know and it's uh it's really interesting when she meets the man that's going to be her husband um eventually uh she's just a big old liar i mean you see it you see it from the very moment and one thing that's one thing that i don't like i don't like to be ambushed by an unreliable narrator um Finding out early on in the narrative is important to me, for, for me to know that sometimes the perspective of the narrating character is a little off. I need to know that pretty much as soon as possible. Because um, being surprised by an unreliable narrator pisses me off. Or one of the more interesting movies I ever watched had Denzel Washington in it and it was about this demon that moved from one body to the other by touch and I read the book I forget what the book is called um but I know that like the the demon would sing that um song by Rolling Stones time on our hands Got time on our hands. Is that the Rolling Stones? Anyways, um, 
it had Denzel Washington in it. And uh, the book, I read the book, and I already knew what was going to happen because I'd watched the movie first. But uh, this movie is from the 80s and 90s, and so I don't feel remotely terrible about ruining it for you. If that's going to be an issue, you might want to turn off for the next five minutes. Anyways, I don't even know what it's called. Uh, Okay, so at the end of the movie, you find out that the demon has been the narrator the entire time. And he kills Denzel Washington's character and trots off in the body of a cat. He wins. I'm not sure if Denzel Washington dies. I think he does. I think he does die. Or he thinks that he won. He thinks that, Maybe he thinks that he beat the demon and he won and he killed the body the demon was in so he couldn't escape and didn't transfer to a new body. It's been a long time since I watched it. But when I realized that the demon was the one actually doing the narrating, it was infuriating because I didn't see that shit coming at all. And I don't like to be surprised with shit like that. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, because Harry Potter is told strictly from Harry Potter's point of view, that in a lot of ways that he is an unreliable narrator, not out of intention, but out of ignorance. Because Harry is the least curious character to ever exist, and his perspective of the magical world is unreliable. Can't depend on Harry to tell you to have any kind of scope as it applies to events in the narrative, which is why eventually she had to branch out into other perspectives and show us scenes and show us activities and things that are going on without Harry because his his scope was so narrow that he was unreliable. And that's an unreliable narrator that is that slides under the radar. Another unreliable narrator that I think slid under the radar, even to himself, would be Riddick in Pitch Black. Riddick sees himself as a cold-blooded, heartless killer. He's a killer. And he might run a little cold, but he's not heartless. He demonstrates repeatedly over and over again that he's not heartless, despite what he says. And so that's a kind of um, unreliable narrator who is lying to themselves, who doesn't um, or refuses to acknowledge their own their own inherent um, dishonesty. They don't know themselves as well as they they think they do. <clears throat> but. My least favorite kind of unreliable narrator, um, I blame on Star Trek. You know those mindfuck episodes where you think one thing is happening, but really another thing is happening? My husband calls them the Riker episodes because there was that one episode where Riker is in a mental institution and doesn't, or, or and he's, he's in a... He's in a room, and I, I've only watched it once because I found it so infuriating that I never watched it again. Um, and it's been decades. Uh, and his perspective is so skewed 
that he has no idea what's going on, and it's told strictly from his point of view. So you think all along this is happening when it's not. Stargate did it briefly with an episode where they think they've gone back to Earth. And then you find out they're being manipulated by aliens. Um, I think the unreliable narrator works best in first person. Uh, and if you're going to do it in third person, um, it has to be a limited POV. You can't have every narrator in a third person um, novel. If there's more than one, be unreliable. Because that shakes the foundation of your world building. If no one knows the truth, and no one is demonstrating the truth to the reader, your world building is going to collapse. It's going to be a hot mess. Um, that's why in um, you see in conspiracy movies, there's always that one person who knows exactly what is going on. That's the viewer reader's touchstone in the work, in the movie, in the TV show, in the... Um, in the book, was the cigarette the the smoking man, the cigarette smoking man in um, the X Files? He's the touchstone in that series. He knows he knows what's going on, even if he's not telling the reader or Mulder or Scully. He knows, and so um, not the reader, but the viewer. So as a viewer, you come to trust the smoking man to to tell you to. He knows what's happening. It's not all a mystery. There, there's deep throat in um, all the president's men. He knew what was going on. There was so you have this this touchstone character, and the worst thing that can happen, the very worst thing. And I never watched X Files, so I don't know if this actually happened. If, if, if I'm hitting a plot point or not, so I'm sorry if I am. The worst thing you can do to your viewer or your reader is to have your touchstone character in a conspiracy situation become unreliable. And I honestly think that when you look at the scope of the Harry Potter series, it Dumbledore Yeah, like Captain America being a Nazi. That's a wha it, I mean, even if they spun it and it's an alternate universe, Captain America, whatever. Fuck you. That was a dumb idea. Anyways, um Dumbledore could have been a character, could have been a touchstone character in the Harry Potter series. Um, but he, too, became unreliable. Almost immediately, he was unreliable. And everyone around him who trusted him became unreliable as well. So, when when you have a... Um, a large scope in your story and your telling and your narrator is unreliable or because they don't know everything, because their perspective is skewed because of experience or prejudice or disease or, um, or they're being manipulated through um, drugs, potions if you're writing Harry Potter, whatever it is. If your narrator is unreliable for any reason, you have to have a touchstone character for your reader to depend on. Um, so that there's some foundation for the rest of your story to take place. There has to be somebody there that's speaking the truth. Because if there isn't, even in reality, if if you're surrounded by people who are um, gaslighting themselves and others, and there's nobody, there's nobody in the room who's speaking truth, 
that can make you deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And you might not even recognize how uncomfortable it is and be able to, to really deal with it, you know. But as a reader, when you become uncomfortable in a narrative, your go-to solution is to stop reading. Whether it's stop reading the story or stop reading the author altogether because they've destroyed that um, trust with you. You you can't trust them to be honest. Now, I personally, I'm I'm probably incapable of writing an unreliable narrator because I often tell my reader when my character is lying. I'm incapable. I mean, it would be like, okay, yeah, and he's lying. Harry lied. Oh, no, I don't want to go to Hogsmeade. Harry lied. <laughs> it's going it's to happen. I just had this this overwhelming desire to tell my reader that my character is a big fat lying liar who lies. <laughs> so there's that. But I don't necessarily, like I said, mind an unreliable narrator as long as I know they're unreliable. I don't want to have it sprung on me in the last five minutes of a movie or the last five minutes of a TV show or the last one chapter of the of a book. I, I don't want to be surprised. Sixth Sense is a, is a big example of unreliable narrator. Um, Fight Club is a good example of an unreliable narrator. Now, in Sixth Sense... Um, the unreliable narrator is is driven by his ignorance of his own circumstances. He is utterly unaware of the fact he doesn't he doesn't understand his own circumstances. In Fight Club, he, he's crazy. He was mentally ill, as as Julie said in the chat room just now. I'm gonna put her on. Since she's so chatty. <sighs> Since you're so chatty. You know how I feel about this subject. <laughs> <laughs> she hates I, she hates the unreliable narrator. <laughs> but do you agree about Riddick being an unreliable narrator? Yeah, he's unreliable because the story is mostly told from his point of view. Even the movie is mostly it's mostly told from his point of view. Um and his perceptions of himself kind of are at odds, like you said, at odds with how he behaves, and yet he keeps perpetuating the, 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 he keeps saying the words. Um, I think to be a true, unreliable narrator story, it would have to be um, more completely in his point of view. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, for the parts, the parts where he's in the story, yeah, he's definitely, where it's definitely focused on him and what his actions and what's going on with him, he's definitely, um, I would call him an unreliable narrator. But I think one of the few times I really enjoyed an unreliable narrator that doesn't get revealed to the end is Verbal Kent in um, The Unusual Suspects. Um, and he's unreliable in a, in, a, in a different way than I've usually seen because he is, he's that category of unreliable narrator that is lying on purpose, which is usually what I don't like, is the deliberate misleading of the audience. But he's actually telling the truth through most of the movie. What's um, really interesting about then, that movie is that none of the actors realized who what was his name in the movie? Kaiser who were they, who were they looking for? 
Kaiser Serge. They all thought they were Kaiser Serge. They didn't know they weren't until the movie came out. <laughs> so, like, all the actors were acting, unreliable narrators. But, I mean, that was the case of where you've got verbal um, – you've got verbal telling the story – He's the only person who knows everything, and so he's telling the truth, but misleading in that he's not Kaiser. So he's unreliable in the sense that he's telling a big, flat, whopping lie, but he tells the truth through the whole movie. So um, he's not unreliable in the sense that he misleads the audience, really, about the truth of what happened. He's unreliable in the sense that he's the one who's behind it all. So it is a really astonished for me. It was like the first time I saw it, it was a really astonishing reveal about what was going on. And it's one of the rare times when I was like, okay, that was really good. <laughs> I mean, I w- there was a story once about one of the actors coming out of the premiere just honestly furious because he thought all along he was Kaiser Soze, but he wasn't. They really did not know the ending of the movie. And I was like, that is stunning. I they probably didn't want it to leak. Right, right. But you know, one of the most interesting things about Sixth Sense and its unreliable narrator is that that is one movie that was not spoiled for me. Everybody wanted you to be just as shocked and horrified as they were. And they were keeping that shit to themselves, even months after it came yeah, out. Because yeah. I didn't see Sixth Sense until it was on DVD, right? And so yeah. it had been out for over a year when I saw it, and no one spoiled it for me. People still do that. If people say, I've heard, I've heard people, oh, you've never seen the Sixth Sense? Oh, I won't tell you the big reveal. Well, like, even I haven't said the big reveal. I mean, I've been talking about it for 20 minutes, and I still haven't said the big reveal. <laughs> and I'm not gonna. Because if you've not seen The Sixth Sense, you need to go watch it and find that shit out for yourself. <laughs> if you haven't already been spoiled. <laughs> but I was like, holy shit. And now I can watch it again trying to find the tells, right? And it was so seamless. It was so seamless. So I didn't feel bad that I didn't get it. And then they did that little montage at the end to show what was missing. Um, mm-hmm. That was like, oh wow, that. And once you knew, it put all those little scenes in perspective, and that was mm-hmm. really well done. Um, the way they put Very all those little well snippets of scenes together to show what had really been going on. That because you were seeing it from one character's point of view, um, you didn't have that perspective of, of the way that had gone down. So it was. So it was it was really well done. I mean, every once in a while it sneaks up on you and you go, oh, wow, I didn't mind that. And then the most of the time, no, I want to throw a book across the room because I do not like finding out at the end of a book that everything was bullshit. Um, well, see, with The Sixth Sense, it's not manipulative. I didn't feel no, manipulated at the end. Um, I agree. I felt, I felt so sad for his character. I was like, oh, God, you didn't know. But then he, he told us. journey with him. Yeah. The kid told us at the very beginning. That's true. They yeah. don't know. There was a big clue. And that is one of the that, that's supposed to be one of the foundations of of that style of writing is there are supposed to be clues. Depending upon the type of unreliable narrator you're doing, is there supposed to be like sometimes the subtle clues worked in? I usually miss them because I tend to miss really subtle things like that. Um there was a book I read um, 
by Dean Koontz. It was sort of an, un- well, it was an unreliable narrator in the sense that the character whose point of view everything was from had no clue what was going on and was told one thing and it was something else entirely. Um, so he's living in a, in a fake world. Um, Truman, and the, it's sort of like Truman and the Truman Shore, but more of a horror novel. Aspect. Truman is an unreliable With narrator, the Truman- right? He is an unreliable narrator, and what pissed me off about Truman is they didn't tell us how it was how it ended. I know. I know that the point of ending it there was because the Truman Show was over. Right. He left the set. the The show was over. The movie ended. It's like if you've seen, if you've read The Martian, The Martian ends when his character, when when Mark Watley leaves Mars, he gets on board the ship, and then it cuts. It's done because he's no longer the Martian. It is a sharp turn, and it is a steep like. The falling action in that thing is like fucking light speed, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and then you have your end. Now, in the movie, blunted that end by having Watley on Earth um, recovered and healthy again, and everything was okay. But the book doesn't end that way. It just ends kind of abruptly. And you're left wondering if Mark ever got home. <laughs> Of course he did. What are you talking about? I'm not wondering. I I have no, I have no doubt. <laughs> well, the Shut movie up. told us that Mark got home. The, the movie told us that Mark got home, but the book didn't. <laughs> I know, but I still don't have any doubt. I'm filling in the blanks. <laughs> There's a great you know, story on AO3 um, in the Martian fandom where um, on his way back to Earth, he released, he sends his data to NASA. Well, NASA's public domain, so he they have to release, and they try to, you know, they edit out personal stuff and, you know, things that are considered um, governmental secrets or whatever, And but a lot of his personal logs get released on the internet, and people are kind of binge-watching it like you would a TV show, and they get really deeply involved in his potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> There's this whole thing about some guy at NASA whose job is to pixelate Mark Watney's dick because he walked around naked <laughs> in the half. <laughs> it's great stuff. It's a great story. Um, I read a story once. Um, again, because people don't tell you. Now, Truman Show, conceptually, the Truman Show, you go in knowing the unreliable narrator aspect, at least. Truman's part of it. You go in knowing it's unreliable because right. he's being deceived. So that's not a big surprise. My my issues with the Truman Show actually are not the unreliable narrator aspect um, because you go in knowing about this aspect of the thing and this whole – the movie's not really about the unreliable narrator part. But I read this, this book oh, – I can't remember when – where – this character is just going through the shit. I mean, just all these, everybody's betraying them. They're going through, um, they're fighting, you know, they finally, they find like, you know, they had all these friends and stuff and that one, there's like only like one person they can trust. And, um, it's just all of this bad stuff is happening to them. And, um, some of it looks like deeply, deeply ugly. And it doesn't come out until I want to say like 
maybe the last, second to the last, well, so I think it's second to the last, so it's the penultimate chapter is when it comes out that the whole thing, the whole, everything had been misinterpretations or delusions based upon um, a, some sort of drug thing that had happened that had caused him to be extremely paranoid and act out violently. And so all the times when he thought that he was being um, restrained and beaten and stuff was actually him lashing out and hurting people. And so people were restraining him to keep him from hurting himself and others. And so his perception mm-hmm. about what had gone on, it was all this mental illness thing. Um, and the thing is, here's the reason why I think is if I'm going to read somebody going through the shit, I mean, going through epic, horrible stuff, the way I deal with it is the satisfaction of them getting their own, right? They, they come into their own, they get back in them, they get out. They, they're, there's some satisfaction to them overcoming this situation. And when it's revealed that it's all a delusion based on mental illness, basically, even though it was drug-induced mental illness, that it was, there's no satisfaction to be had. There's no, there's no come down from hey, that. Y'all. It's like the, cli- the climax of the story is more pain. And the, the falling action is drowning in regret and feeling like they're never going to get their life back. And it, is just, it just felt so awful. And so I didn't, I mean, it just doesn't make me, it just, there's no, there's no, no, no satisfying ending to that. And I, I was so furious that I had, you know, wrapped up, gotten so wrapped up in this character and their, and their journey and how would they get through this and how would they triumph over it to find out that it was all a lie. I'd be mad. I was mad. I was mad. I think I threw that book. <laughs> <laughs> there is a story in Stargate where Rodney is an unreliable narrator due to the race enzyme. He thinks Ooh. one thing happens, but another thing actually happened. Um, and people are taking sides, they don't know what's going on, and, and they don't actually find out for quite a while that he has a wraith enzyme-induced psychosis going on. Um, uh, and um, then it becomes obvious what actually happened versus what Rodney thought happened and what he reported to have happened. And um, But I don't want to... Uh, it's... Um, the story made me deeply uncomfortable when I read it, and I was like, that is really good. You're a great writer, and I'm, I'm never reading this again. <laughs> is the story told entirely from his point of view? Um, in the start, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that that's one of the things that makes the unreliable narrator thing work is, is, um, is when it's told entirely from their point of view, which is why it's usually done first person, and there's no temptation to change point of view. Um, is if it's entirely in that person's point of view, there's nothing to contradict the plot device, you know, what the author is trying to achieve with this unreliable narrator. Um, Can it be done in third person? Yes. Can it be done well in third person? No. This is just my point of view because even I mean you know I know writers who've been writing for decades who would who would hesitate to write a unreliable narrator in third person because like Julie said it's it's really difficult to maintain the illusion of an unreliable narrator if 
unless they're all unreliable and then that becomes unrealistic and your your work's going to fall apart. Like I said before, when you have an unreliable or uninformed or um, manipulated or ignorant narrator, you have to have a touchstone. You have to have somebody in your work that knows the truth. But if there's nobody there, that there's no foundation. So I think when a third person, it would have to be a third person limited in that you only told the story in one point of view. Um, it has to be very deep, yeah. deep third yeah, person. Deep, so you might as well write first person. <laughs> Well, I, I, I often write third person. I, I often write yeah. person narrative, but it, it, it's I, I would say for a lot of writers, it's hard. It's easier to write first person than a really deep third person narrative, um, because there's just a lot of devices you use in in, um, in third person, a lot of phrasing and stuff that doesn't exist in a deep third person narrative, like a really deep one. Um, and I screw that up. So I mean, it's not the easiest it's not the easiest point of view to get into. So if you're trying to do unreliable narrator and you're trying to do a deep third person, you're not familiar with it. Um, it's, it's not going to be easy, but you do have to, I do think you have to stick to that one point of view. Um, I think if you're going to play with it, that it would be better to experiment in first person. I agree. I wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not signing up for this mission, but <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I'll be staying home. <laughs> I'll be on the home front rolling bandages. Let me know how it works I, out. <laughs> if you were doing, if you were doing, um, you probably could if you're careful about how you structure it, where you could do um, unreliable narrator, where one 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 person was unreliable and one person was reliable with a like an alternating third person limited type thing. Um, but the characters wouldn't, it's almost like you wouldn't be bringing the characters together to the end. It would kind of, maybe you could have like the characters come together and like towards the end of, of the book. And then that's when it's disclosed, which one of them is unreliable. Um, it would be kind of more like a reveal thing. Like which of these characters you'd have conflicting information in two different storylines and you don't know which one is not telling the truth until they come together and the truth comes out. But I mean that would be kind of a lot of work for a for a style of writing I don't enjoy. I know, right? <laughs> now the other part of this question is um mixing first and third person. Now, oddly enough, Elizabeth Peters also did this. But she did it in a very interesting way and honestly I've done it too. Um, I think that you will find that most of you have probably done it and not even realized it. Now, in um, the Amelia Peabody series, it is told basically as if she's sat down to talk with you, and she's telling you a very involved story with dialogue and just the whole works, right? Well, as her son got older and started to be involved in the situations that they were in, the author, Elizabeth Peters, started including excerpts of his journal. Now, Amelia's son wrote in third person, whereas Amelia wrote in first person, and she would separate the son's um, narrative out into excerpts from his journal. So it wasn't jarring to go from first person to third person unexpectedly, because you would see it marked off like a journal entry or an article 
or a letter, which is where I have actually mixed third person and first person. Because often when I write um, uh, letters that I include in the body of my work, they're written in, they're, they're always written in first person. When I have included um, um, interviews, like with Harry and Harry Potter, like if I do an interview that, that ends up in a paper, he um, he always speaks in first person. Now these are situations where it's reasonable to see a first person narrative in a third person work, an article, an interview, a letter, a journal entry. Um, but like I said, Elizabeth Pierce did it backwards. The, her her narrator wrote in first person, but when her narrator was reading excerpts of her son's journals. Those were read, and he, um, he wrote in third person. And I think that was a way of separating Amelia's voice from her son's voice, which makes sense in the context of the Amelia Peabody series, but would not make so much sense in a traditional narrative if you were switching back and forth between points of view. And the more infuriating switchback is when you're writing two characters in first person in the same story and you're telling both of their points of view. And in order mm. to avoid confusion, of course, you have to label the POV. And if you have to label your fucking POV, you're not doing a good job. Now, in a think about it, it worked because of the third person narrative is being told is, is their journal excerpts into her work. So it makes sense, right? It's like she's reading articles, basically, from her son's perspective in various events and situations, and it works. But what wouldn't work is if it was first person, third person, and they switched off chapters. That is jarring, it is annoying, and it is bad craft. And I don't care who disagrees with me. <laughs> it is bad craft. And if you're going to write more than one point of view, then you need your writing third person. Don't be doing that. <laughs> if you can't stick to one character in first person, you don't need to write in first person, okay? I'm No, no. no. It drives me nuts. This could be the hill I die on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm really rigid about this. I won't read it. If I, if I start seeing first and third person mixed outside of the context you've given where you've got, like, articles, often, you know, letters, especially letters written. Letters Emails, written letters. Person. Yeah, it's actually very Sometimes text messages. Letter. Yeah, it'd be odd to read a letter in first person and third person. You'd be like, what is going on? Right. Here? Um. But you know, there's really nothing more annoying than somebody referring to themselves in third person. (laughs) I agree. But the thing I read, I read, I read some articles in the past. People talk about, you know, it's sort of like people kind of going, you know, it's a bad idea to mix first and third. But you know, if you want it, if you're going to do it, you know, this is kind of how you can do it and why it might make sense. And some of the some of the kind of things that they're talking about that where it might make sense to mix first and third is like your main character is going to be in first person and you want to really deep and draw the reader close. And then you maybe don't want to reveal as much stuff and keep other characters at a distance, but you need their point of view. So you do them in third person. Um, to me, that feels always, I, I hate, I don't like writing. Um, I don't like sort of craft advice that winds up feeling contrived. 
And when people do things that I feel that to me feel unnatural like that, I feel like that they're they're doing it using a contrivance. They're using a contrivance to make something happen instead of just committing. Because if you want to tell one person's story and you want them to be the focus, but you want a, a deep, intimate point of view, but you need more than one point of view, I mean. So right in the deep third person, but again, changing point of view is a little bit strange when you're doing a deep third person. Um, to go from a more shallow third person to a deep third person is a little bit odd, but less odd than going from first to third. And less um, jarring, because you want your reader experience. And this, and this really boils down to readability. When it comes to craft issues like this, it always boils down to readability. You want your work to be clear, concise, and readable. Because if it's not readable, then why the fuck are you doing it? Right. It's just I find it. I mean, if often the thing is, if I talk to people who, start, who have an issue with first person point of view, and they go, "Well, if I'm doing first person, I'm stuck with one point of view." Um, and if for anybody who's a head hopper, you need to spend time writing in first point, first person point of view, if you want to stop that shit, because you'll never understand as clearly what contains the point of view until you're doing an eye point of view. you get It's really clear what I cannot know when it's said in that way. Um, but third-person point of view makes it muddier. So first-person point of view is very, is very crystal clear whose who point of view it is and, and what's going on. And if, if there's something that they have to know but they can't know in that point of view – and I would usually challenge the person that they need to work on more creative ways of solving that problem and throwing in some third-person point of view is not the solution. One of the things but, I did in Darkly Loyal is I came across problems where I um, – and this is this is, obviously isn't a situation that you could use outside of Harry Potter, to be perfectly frank. Um, I, I came into a problem because Harry was my narrator, and that was a first – and that was a single-character point of view challenge. We, we had to write from a single-character's point of view, and it was challenging. And I, uh, I've written first person in the past. I don't have a problem writing first person. I honestly wish I had written that project from first person because it would have been easier. (laughs) 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 But what I did do was that I started sending the house elves around and gathering memories and letting the trio watch memories and get reports on situations that Harry couldn't physically see to broaden my narrative. Now, when you're in a traditional environment that doesn't allow for pensive memories and and stuff like that, you have to um, add to your narrative um, through secondary character sources, uh, letters, um, phone calls, tips. You know, just when when your character can't know, someone has to tell them. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing in first person, you, you have to make assumptions. Your character has to make assumptions. He can't say Harry was mad. He has to say Harry looks mad. Because, <laughs> you know, that, that's an assumption that your narrator is going to have to make based on the um, visible and verbal cues that he gets from the person. Because, you know, honestly, if someone saw me furious, they might assume that instead of furious, that I'm sad. 
because I'm an angry crier. When I get furious, I cry. And the more mad I am, the more I cry. And people would look at me from the outside and say, oh, well, she looks really sad and upset. Let me go comfort her. That is the last fucking thing you want to do when you see me cry. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm crying, I am like one step away from homicide. It's like, don't get close. Don't get close. But oddly enough, when I'm really deeply hurt, I don't cry. It's, 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 I just blank out. But when I'm furious, I, all I do is cry. And then I get m- more angry because I'm crying. <laughs> Why am I crying? This is awful. This is so terrible. stupid. <laughs> I find, I was talking to somebody about, there are trade-offs you make when you do a first-person thing. And sometimes if your character, for whatever reason, isn't at the scene of something that happens and we're going, you know, there's a lot of different ways that your character can find out information. I was talking to them and they said, okay, so like my character goes to bed and there's this thing that happens overnight. And uh, I won't reveal what the thing was, but it's critical to the story that this thing happened in the night. And, um, and then they wake up in the morning and, you know, they don't know. And so she's just cruising along. And the way the character would find out is like, let's say on the news or a newspaper article and then make a phone call and say, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, okay, well, there's no problem with that. And she said, well, it's not as interesting as seeing the thing that happened. And plan had been to, you know, put the whole thing in, in, into exposition. Like, you know, she calls and asks the question and she heard all these things that happened and yeah, it's very boring. But I said, well, there are other options or other ways you can do that. You know, a conversation is much more interesting than exposition, but if there were videos, maybe they go to a command center and see the video replay of all the battle and sit there and react to what they're seeing. I mean, there's ways to get that information to the character that don't involve exposition long. And that was the perception that she had was that if she, that that was the trade-off she was making was, if she didn't go into that other person's point of view, who was at the interesting thing that happened overnight, that it would have to be relayed to the audience in the form of exposition. And that is just not so. I'm trying to not be indelicate. I have, if you don't, I have a story. Yeah, that's just bad. I'm just, I don't have to be delicate because I don't know them. It's a, that's a bad idea. <laughs> exposition is the thing you should avoid the most. But the solution to exposition is not to, to go first person and third person. That's just not figuring out an alternative. And honestly, that's kind of a lazy approach. If you can't tell your story in a single point of view standard, first person, third person, second person. Oh, shut up. <laughs> know it from the start. If you're looking at your story and you can't tell it from first person without switching to a different character's POV, then you need to tell it in third person. Full stop. Your point of view choice is supposed to serve your story. This isn't a vanity choice. This is a choice that you make for your story. It's just as important as your setting, as your main character, 
because this is how you connect to your reader. This is your pathway into your reader's mind, the point of view that you're going to give them. Whether it be first person or third person, um, or wretchedly a second person. Uh, it's just as important to say whether you write in past tense or present tense. It's all part of your foundation that you're going to build your story with. And so you need to know what your story requires. Just my personal opinion. I would say I could I be wrong, but I so seriously doubt that I am wrong on that. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Someone asked me one day what I thought of first-person omniscience. And I was like, shut up. Tell me that's not a thing. And apparently it is a thing. Oh, yeah, it's a then. thing. It's a thing. I mean, I, I, just the idea of it. I want the point, right? What, what is the point of telling a first-person story from, with a, from the perspective of an omniscient narrator? Um, what she's talking about, for those of you who aren't really strong on the terminology of writing, is first-person God point of view. Omniscient means God. I mean, it's a God point of view where you know everything, that your narrator knows everything that everything that everybody is feeling, doing, have done, will done. It's literally the point of view of God, but that without God, you the actual, not the actual right. God. You know what I mean? Your your character yeah. has a godlike circumstance. They know everything, and to, so basically, you're taking a first person point of view, and you're saying this is only from this person's point of view, based normally, but they also know everything the other characters are thinking or feeling or whatever. Not because of some kind of special power that they have, like Professor X or whatever, just because. They're 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 both the first person point of view, and the omniscient narrator. So it. I have to say no. that it's it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to read. It's like I have never gotten through an entire project written like this. Um, uh, the only thing that's more annoying to me, literally, is second person. Um, the only thing more offensive than second person is second person erotica. <laughs> because I'll say it, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. You don't order me to come. <laughs> you don't tell me when to come. I don't even know you. <laughs> My orgasm is none of your business. <laughs> it's just so. Ah, it's so horrific. Hmm. Second person, I just and and there are so many. And the thing is, it's one thing. There's there's basically two types of second person, um, and fan fiction. Unfortunately, you see a lot of the type I really hate. There is a type of second person where the language of second person is used, but the character is actually still talking to another character. The reader. Not the reader, another character. So it'd be sort of like John and it's like a John Rodney story, and when and and being told from John's point of view in second person, but he's talking to Rodney using second person language. 
So there's that, which is a little bit strange, which puts the reader in the position of being Rodney, which is a little bit weird, but marginally more acceptable than the stories that are literally the character and the reader. And that's the intent. I hate character and the reader, which is character blah, 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 blah. reader. Character reader stories annoy. I just at that point, it's not. I can't even say the story because I wouldn't pick one up if you paid me. Um, but it, it's that point. That well, it would depend on you. how much you paid me. If uh, you want to well, send me twenty five dollars okay. to have, read your five hundred word story on um, Ao three, hit me up. <laughs> it, it's probably twenty five dollars per five hundred words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll even no, give you a kudo. No. <laughs> not even, um, omnipotent is all powerful. Omniscient is all knowing. So no, it's not the same. Um, it's not okay. the same. I want to put out a little chart for those of you who are completely lost between what first, second, and third person is. First person, I walk down the street. Second person, you walk down the street. Third person, he walked down the street. I hope that's clear. <clears throat> that's a very simple. Example. One thing I've noted. One thing that I back to that second person thing about John speaking to Rodney in second person. One thing I noticed in first per, in new first person writers is that often they stumble on dialogue. And first person um, narrative is is pretty easy to get, but when you get into to dialogue, you have to keep in mind that um, dialogue in itself is is normally um, written in first person, so you don't need to worry too much about um, what your characters are going to say. You don't need to fixate on it. And people who are new to the first point of view, for the first person point of view, when I've seen them stumble, like in seminars and stuff that I, that I've taught, it's usually been on dialogue of other characters. They don't know how to react or respond to it. And I had one woman lose their mind because she, her mind because she had a problem um, because she had been told she could not on any circumstances, like, use the word he, she, and we in a first-person narrative. Well, of course you can. Yeah. Don't yeah. be ridiculous. I mean, actually, that's one of the things that I think one of, one, of the, one of the things that can be jarring about first-person narrative and why people many times don't like it is overuse of I. Because right. you think it's I, so you're supposed to be telling – so I can sit there and describe it. And you could actually probably write – maybe even a couple of pages um, without ever using I, because the character is, can describe your, your first person character can describe everything that's going on without ever talking about themselves. So it can be like, you know, Maggie walked across the room and did this and this and that, and then this and this and that happened. And then occasionally you slip in and I rolled my eyes when she did this. It doesn't have to be, I watched Maggie walk across the room. I watched her smile. That's completely unnecessary for the first-person point of view. And it is kind of – it reads really poorly when you get that many I statements. I, 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 so I, I. You just describe the action. You just describe, you know, Maggie did this and that, and then she did this and this and this, and when she dropped the – and then here comes the first-person part, and when she dropped the coffee in my lap, I screamed. Because that's the point at which your character's point of view, the point-of-view character – their eye is relevant. You don't need to describe, have them describe themselves in the scene all the time. I went back to the office. I grabbed some coffee. Da, da, da. You know, it can be we headed back to the office. The afternoon went like this. And 
the point the point is is you don't have to make every single observation and thing that happens in the story set literally from the eye perspective. I witnessed this. I saw that. It doesn't. It, there's he she he did this they did that whatever. But when it comes to them, then yes, it's I. And that's one of the things I read. I've seen a lot in new first person writers is it's so many I statements. Right. I did this, I did that, I observed this, I felt that. And you just kind of, it it reads oddly and you really notice you're in first person as opposed to the stories you read. And I'm sure everybody's had this experience is you're reading that first person story and you're like on page 10 before it really sinks in that you're in first person. It's been there so Or by page 10, you've totally bypassed that it is first person. Yeah, that it doesn't even register you. When... Right, when you eye, come across a writer who can do that, write them down, keep, keep them close. <laughs> yes. so keep reading. That is that's kind of like that's kind of like point of view magic is that you don't notice the point of view. Um, and well, the, the way point is, that is that you shouldn't notice the point of view. Right, and you don't want it because you don't need to bludgeon the reader with person point of view. Uh, but there is this perception that everything has to be framed as if I saw it as opposed to it happened. If I could give one piece of advice writing in first person, and I'm thinking I'm thinking I'm going to write my story in April in first person, so um, you guys can watch me do that in Rough Trade. Uh, I, th- I think it would be a lot of fun. Or not. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. It's just 30K. <laughs> I can handle 30K in first person. I've written much, much bit more. Um, but... Um, a first-person narrative just talks the way you talk. You don't put I in every sentence when you're speaking. I think this. I think that. I walked across the street. You don't just when you're writing a first person, just just talk to your reader, but not really. Yeah, but not really. Sit down like you're going to tell your reader a story, but don't engage your reader in a conversation. And that's the difference between first person and second person. Second person is a um, engagement, third wall breaking kind of situation that you don't want to do, unless you do, and then may have God and mercy on yourself. If you're going to break the fourth wall in first person or third person, do it on purpose. (laughs) Don't ever do it accidentally. And there is a lot of. So I'll give you an example of accidental fourth wall breaking. Kind of muted to um, me. Have you moved your mic? Did I move my mic? Or is it? Maybe I need to clean my ear. Yeah, you're better now. It could be me. Am I better? <laughs> yeah, you're better. Uh, <laughs> I might need to clean my ears out. I don't know. It could be me. It could have been that I just moved my phone to where it had shitty signal. Um, <laughs> there, there are some... Um, so I was reading something, and it was the most jarring third-person statement, and it, it actually is sort of breaking the fourth wall because it makes the um, reader aware that, that – that, so, and the, the phrase was, so when you're in first person, um, when you use statements like, not in dialogue, but in the narrative, if you use statements like, but I digress, that is implicitly saying you're aware your story to somebody. It's one thing to say in dialogue, I digress. It is another thing in the narration to say, I digress. Because it's it, kind of like you just kind of cut your eyes to the camera and go, did you see this shit? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> but I, 
ignore it, but, you know, I've kind of strayed away from the topic. We both know it, wink, wink. It's a complete fourth wall breaker, and it's really subtle, and a lot of people throw that in. It's almost worse, and I saw, one day I saw this, I was reading something, and it said, but he digressed, and I went, oh, you can't do that. You just need <laughs> well, to stop. Like Let's just make it a rule not to digress. use the word digress in a story just to get it out of the way. That way you don't make that mistake. Yeah, <laughs> but it, when you put in statements like that, it is, it is, it is an, in a implicitly acknowledging the reader. It's like, I know I'm telling a story. I know you're reading. But I digress. <laughs> it, and it, you, that's the last thing you want your character to do is acknowledge that they're telling a story because that is when you are breaking the fourth wall. So um, unless it's dialogue, unless your character is saying something and they've gotten long-winded, long-winded and they go, but I digress. Never, ever use that phrase. Ever. <laughs> well, you know what I would also say is that for all of these um, – these situations, these rules of POV and word choice and the fourth wall um, and um, writing in first person and second person is that um, fiction should have a very casual voice. One of the more difficult spots I see in new writers is a very formal and stilted narrative, a very mm-hmm. stiff upper lip narrative. Your a fiction narrative should be relaxing to read. It should be smooth, the pace, everything about it should be. And it was suspense. Yeah, you're gonna build your pace up, 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 up. But your narrative itself should be casual. You're not writing a term paper <laughs> or a book report. <laughs> Okay, Edie, have you ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Or Deadpool? Or Deadpool? When Ferris turns to the camera and talks directly to the audience, he's breaking the fourth wall. And Deadpool does it. And apparently their office does it, where the actors engage with the camera. It's acknowledging that you know the audience exists and talking to them. And it's not, it's not just narration, like I'm telling a story to an audience. It's actually specifically breaking away from your narrative to talk to the audience. And that is outside of the story. So like when Deadpool, typically, now Deadpool even breaks this rule, but typically when a character breaks the fourth wall, the other characters don't know it's happening or notice that it's happening, even if it's right in front of them. But I'm pretty sure there's a scene in Deadpool where someone calls him on the fact that he's talking to the audience. I can't quite remember. My favorite fourth wall incident in Deadpool is when he questions which version of the professor he's going to get to meet. Am I meeting McAvoy or or Stewart? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's hilarious. Robin had been in tights. Um, Tight, tight. Every time it pops into my head. Every single time I see that. Tight, tight. There's a scene um, that I thought was kind of fourth wall breaking in um, in uh, Men in Tights where um, the witch, the, the sheriff has, fall, has fallen through her, her hut and she kind of gropes him and Tracy Ullman turns to the camera and says, I touched it. <laughs> That's a fourth wall break. 
There's other ones, smaller ones in that movie, where you're just given a little hint of a fourth wall break. Um, it's an Everlast. <laughs> yes. Well, and when the camera, when the camera's panning in and then it breaks through her window and you see the camera and she kind of looks right. at it and shakes her head, that's a fourth wall break. Um, yeah. Tight, tight. But in Every Deadpool, time it pops have, into my head. They have a, he, he actually calls out, it's one of my favorite moments in Deadpool, is when he has a, he has a, uh, he's having a, a flashback, a memory that has a fourth wall break. And so he has a fourth wall break within a fourth wall break. Um, which I always, he points it out. So he, his character in the past points out that it's a fourth wall break within a fourth wall break. It's like they had no boundaries. And that's one of the things when you're breaking the rules, I think one of the first things that is really key about breaking rules is that first you have to know the rules. Um, and then when you break them, they have to be done very deliberately. Um, then with, planning, and with style, you know, yeah, yeah planning and style and for purpose. I think the merchandise room in Spaceballs is pretty funny. And the part where they fast-forward the movie, the movie's already out, and they fast-forward the movie to see what happens. When Dark Helmet has a copy of Spaceballs. Yeah. And you wouldn't even initially think to go, because nobody's looking at the camera, you wouldn't even think to go, oh, a fourth wall break. But it really is when you see um, merchandise. Yeah, <laughs> baseball merchandise. And there's one moment when when he pulls out his Schwartz, and it, you know it's totally a dick. Obvious, it's obviously a dick moment. But the actor kind of cocks his head at the camera. I mean, he's not really, but it's like there's just like that moment where he's smirking a little at the camera. <laughs> and my Schwartz is bigger than your Schwartz. <clears throat> But Mel Brooks fourth is a wall- different animal. Yeah, he is. And fourth wall breaks can be very fun. And a lot of times, um, you'll notice most of, the, most of the instances we've given the fourth wall breaks are funny. Um, and that is the context I think they work the best in. Um, I've rarely seen fourth wall breaks in, in printed form that I thought flew at all. Um, for the most part, much, when I see it in printed form, I think, "Oh, that's just terrible craft." Yeah, because it's better. It's better visually, and it is better to me. I think it comes off better as a as a device um, in in a, in in a humorous context. Done seriously or done in print, a lot of times it falls flat. I would say in print, I would say ninety nine percent of the time, fourth wall breaks. It's like, what the fuck is? I this? think an interesting type of fourth wall break. Um, happens at the end of The Fault of Our Stars. Because it ends abruptly, leaving you with the idea that the character died. It's a it's a break from the fictional, and it kind of slaps you in the face with reality that you're not going to mm-hmm. get the end of the book because she's dead. And that's a really, it's a very subtle fourth wall. Yeah, I wouldn't even have thought of that as a fourth wall break, but yeah. It's it's not a traditional, but it is. I mean, it's pretty much exactly the same way The Martian ended. I mean, it was like abrupt. It was, um, you got hit with reality. But in, um, but in the, in the fault of our stars, it just, uh, it ends. 
it's just over. Well, and um, the diary of Anne Frank ends the same way. Yeah. But Anne Frank's reality. And you know what happens to her. But what it is, it is it, breaking the fourth wall is is breaking the um, the mystique between fiction and reality, between the narrative and you as the reader. Mm-hmm. Of course, the Diary of Anne Frank is not fiction, but you know what I mean. It's about the narrative yeah. um, being broken for one reason or another. And most of the time, it's just a terribly bad idea. Because it could either be jarring or really depressing, and I've depressed myself. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're going to do that kind of thing, do it purposefully, intentionally, and and for it to have for good reason. Not just because it's is convenient, and I don't mean specifically fourth wall breaks, but you know some of the odd things that people do in stories. It's pretty much any rule that is out there has been broken. I mean, it used to be that you couldn't write in sentence fragments, and then everybody started writing in sentence fragments. And a sentence fragment can be very impactful. A sentence fragment, you know, like one. Um, you know, not a hundred. When you're, yeah, but when you're doing, you know, when you're doing, you know, almost. 80% of your sentences are not complete independent clauses. That's Somebody did it in a book that was really popular and people thought it was really clever. And then a bunch of people went out and started writing books like that. And then I wanted to stab somebody because in the eye. Gimmick, it, it is, it's like a gimmick and gimmicks don't, they may, they may, the first person who first, maybe first person, first couple people who really jump on the gimmick and do it well are going to make money at it. And then basically the, the publishing market just circles back to, okay, that's weird. We're not interested. I honestly wouldn't want to be defined by a gimmick. No, I wouldn't either. As a writer. Or even as a person, to be perfectly frank. That's just me. We've already established that my ego is quite healthy. (laughs) I just say how I'm defined, and it is not by gimmicks like breaking the fourth wall and um, labeling my point of view. (laughs) Labels. If if I see a label in your fic with a character's name on it, I'm closing it. If it's written in third person or first person, if you have to label your um, POV, you're, you're doing it wrong. It's almost as annoying as seeing the word scene break in between scenes. <laughs> Come on now, there's stars for that. That's... Don't laugh, it's terrible. It's terrible. These well, are my circumstances, I, I actually, man. I had somebody recommend a published novel that actually went through a publisher that was first person alternating. And um, it was alternated per chapter. Okay, so it, it wasn't even, it wasn't even, I read a chapter. And then I get to the next chapter, and I noticed the POV label, and that really should have been my big clue. Um, but I didn't actually think about it at that moment. I just started reading, and I get to the next chapter, and there's another POV label, and it's a different character. 
And it was alternating chapters. So every chapter changed POV, and it did go back and forth consistently. And I said, what the fuck is with these POV labels? This is making me crazy. And she said, well, how else do you know whose point of view you're in? And I was like, really? Well, for starters, even if you couldn't tell from the writing, they have a very consistent device built into the book, which is alternating chapters. But right, you know, whatever. I'm not reading this shit. <laughs> I can't do it. The only thing worse than alternating points of view is alternating points of view um, that are labeled, and the only thing worse than that are alternating points of view that are labeled that rehash the same scene. Oh, no, 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 no. Drives me bonkers. Drives me absolutely fucking bonkers. I will throw shit (laughs) to go outside and walk my dog around the neighborhood till he gets mad at me. Refuses to walk anymore. Then I have to carry his little tubby ass home. <laughs> I was, I don't know, I think the first time I encountered that, um, I, was, I was, I was probably in my 20s, where a book had come out, and it was told in first person point of view, also all from one person's point of view. And then there was a sequel. I bought the book. And um, the sequel was the same story told from the other character's point of view. And I didn't know this when I bought the book, and I was massively pissed off. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what the fuck? Why? I don't care. I don't need to be told the same story from multiple points of view, and I am not picking on you-know-who. Um, yes, she did it with all three books, and I was not at all surprised that she decided to. she wanted to glut her audience that way, um, but um, I'm, I'm not picking on her. You know what I'm talking about? I'm drawing a blank. You'll tell me and I'll probably E.L. James wrote the entire Fifty Shades of Grey um, trilogy from from Christian's point of view. I can I can see your cat butt face from here. The whole thing was from her point of view. She wrote she wrote she wrote all three books again from his point of view. What? Okay. I'm not kidding. Go look. Go look on Amazon. I saw Freed in um, Target, and I was like, "What is this?" And I picked it up because I thought maybe she'd written something new, and I had forgotten that she'd written Gray, which was the first book from his point of view. Well, she's also put out the other two books. It's a trilogy. She put out the Fitzgerald Gray trilogy in his point of view. Gray, Darker, and Freed. Are, are we going to have to deal with three more movies? Okay, I'm not trying to be. I don't yeah, think okay, so. Surely not. <laughs> because yeah, because, because we can't talk about that on this radio show because I've already um, uh, been a hypocrite would, once. No, I, I, I so I so have that turn, tuned out, but I I miss that. I actually I just I don't. Um, I mean the thing is people will do anything if they think it's going to make them money and if they can, you know. And that's the only that's really the only impetus for a publisher to put out um the same story told from a different point of view is it's because they think it's gonna make them money uh, but it's it's just i just don't it's just not something I'm interested in reading and I don't think it's good crap um i don't think i think if you you need that point of view to tell your story you should have told the story in that point of view it's just a way to make money I'm not knocking that I like to make money too um but it's just a way to make money. When anybody does it. Yeah, anybody. You've already told that story. 
Oh, speaking of that, Sybil, I saw your question about um, uh, rewrites, and it's going to be the um, podcast, um, the next podcast, whenever I do that. It'll be the next one, um, about rewriting something you lost. Because I have to wait, I have to gear up to that. I have to um, kind of work myself up to that because um, I had a terrible, terrible experience and it hurt my feelings. <laughs> but it, it is, whether you lose, whether you lose one page or a thousand pages of work, there is almost, I think, no more devastating feeling to an author to realize you can't recover something. Um, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah, but what she's actually specifically asking in the question, how to um, how to overcome it. So, um, just the just it's uh, it's harsh. It is hard. One time, I um my system crashed, but Word was up, but it was not responsive. And I um, got at least one page in a screenshot. <laughs> I've never been so happy to retype something in my life because I was like, I've got a page. I've got one of the pages. One of the pages. I've got one. I know at least at least I've got something tangible that I could go, I could work back to that point. Because there was this one tangible page. I go, well, how did I get here? Oh, yeah. And that one page, I was like, I never, I was like, oh, I've re- I don't mind retyping. It was the most happy retyping ever. <laughs> I've got a page. Yay. <laughs> no, I mean, it is, it, it is a devastating loss because, and I think that if you're not um, creative, that it might be difficult to understand what it means to lose something, whether it be a piece of art or something you wrote or something you made, and if you break something that you made, and it's it's the creative process is so personal, and so um, losing something it, or having it taken from you, which is another experience altogether, um, can be very upsetting. Which is which is why I think plagiarism is so galling. Outright plagiarism is is so galling because they've taken they've taken your stuff and put their name on it. Yeah, they claimed it as their own. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna compare it to I'm not gonna compare it to kidnapping because that'd be ridiculous. <laughs> but it it's it's plagiarism is a very um, emotional crime. It's beyond theft. Plagiarism is beyond theft. I mean, beyond the monetary issue, if it's original work and they've published it or whatever, and you have to go get them and sue them for slapping their paragraph in the middle of their no- your paragraph in the middle of their novel, it's it's more than that. It's um, it's like getting punched in the face, or actually, no, it's like getting slapped in the face, which is more galling than being punched. If I had a choice between being punched and slapped, I'd rather be punched. Because slap is so disrespectful. <laughs> I can't. I have. I have no ability to explain why I think that. I just do. I'd rather be punched than slapped, and I'd rather be punched than lied to. <laughs> Outright lied to. Just, just punch me in the face. <laughs> It'll hurt less in the end.
Yeah, I agree. Is the the being slapped in the face it is incredibly disrespectful, and it it um, um, it's no good. It's no good. And I agree. There's something about. I mean, I I I reacted less emotionally when somebody broke into my car um, and stole all the stuff out of it than I did when someone stole something I had written. Well, that really happened to you. Someone stole your work and 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 put their name on it. Yeah, there's a work of mine out there from my X Files days with somebody else's name on it. I can't do anything about it. I want to kick their ass. Has anybody ever called them on it? There have been a couple of comments made, like, "I didn't you write this under another name? Isn't it actually in the same archive under another name? What the hell?" Um, so people have commented. I've seen some comments, uh, just a couple. It's like, I'm pretty sure this is a story. Because the story has, they did it under a different name uh, that changed the title, but literally nothing else. So, um, and I I tried to, like, create, an, you know, try to contact the archivist and, like, point out that there's this plagiarism thing going on. Um, and that the, the story of mine, um, and actually I would have taken my work down if I could even it's an archive that exists that you cannot contact the, ar- the archivist because in order to contact the archivist you have to go through one of those CAPTCHA things where you type in the word that you see and you cannot contact the archivist without doing that and their CAPTCHA system is broken wow so there's no way to tell anybody that this plagiarism is on their archive. And, I mean, the archivist has not been contacted probably for, like, three years. And apparently they are not even remotely mystified by this fact. So They might have lost interest in the fandom work. and they aren't even yeah. maintaining people it. People are supposed to be new works in that archive. So it's just kind of like, bleh. And I don't mean to be but ugly, yeah, but they could have died. Well, that's true. If that's the case, yeah. eventually their hosting package will expire and then and, and then it'll be gone. <laughs> Is that ugly? Sorry. I mean, eventually, well, I think eventually everything dies on the internet. But I mean, yeah, there's I've had works plagiarized, and there's, you know, because it was that fandom ID that I don't want to publicly claim. There's nothing I can do mm-hmm. about. It. But actually, even if I claimed it in this particular case, I still can't do anything about it because I can't. Yeah, but we could abuse down. the shit out of the person who um, plagiarized you. Yeah, I said it. There is actually my one exception for trolling um, is plagiarists. I will troll the fuck out of a plagiarist. I, I, what? Ask me. <laughs> I'm all up in it. Yeah, I agree. Plagiarism is just not okay. Well, that question kind of jumps right on something that happened this week, didn't it? Hmm. In a parallel-ish, parallel-ish question, where do you draw the line from someone stealing your idea or world building or whatever and then being inspired by it? Um, well, I said before, and I'll say again, that you can't steal an idea. Um, uh, and even world building itself, um, unless you're using specific terms that the person used. Um, so like, for instance, if someone took my ties at Bomb World Building and they used my pleasure houses, um, I would consider that inspiration unless they claimed it as their own and never mentioned me. 
the concept of pleasure houses themselves, I have no claim to. And even if I did, I wouldn't. Because you can't claim an idea like that. You can't claim ownership of an idea like that. Um, but you can't copyright it. But uh, And also, um, there are dozens of of not maybe not maybe not dozens but many instances of um BDSM worlds and pleasure houses and um sexual training in science fiction novels um including that big one that everybody asked me if I read and I haven't um because it has rape in it and I don't read rape uh what's it if lady holder was here she'd be able to say it she'd be able to tell me what it is um i th- I, I, th- I think the author's australian Cushel's uh, Dart. Cushel's Dart. Cushel's Dart. Yeah. Yes. Um, which is um, there's BDSM elements in that, but there's also pleasure houses in that, and also oddly they also have tattoos in that, um, which I didn't know until it was pointed out to me because, like I said, I, I've never read it because it's got sex slavery in it, and which is rape to me, and I don't, I don't read rape, and it's not a reflection on the author of Cushel's Dart at all, um, at all, because I just it's this is my personal preference to not read rape of any sort. dubious consent, ever how you want to label it, it's all rape, and I'm not interested. Yeah, I, yeah. But when it comes so, to I, world building, so ideas, ideas, like, because you can't take an ideas are only copyrightable when there is, there is a legal definition for it, for when they have um, manifested as something, which means you've written it down or made a movie or made a written a song, you have to, you have to, there has to be a manifestation of the idea for it to be copyrightable. Um, Some sort of realization of it. That being said, while Harry Potter is copyrighted, the idea of a child going to a magical school is not. He isn't even the first. There were a series of books in the 70s about a magical school. Well, I, I think it was a witch. Yeah, well, you, and the thing is that there is legal precedent for you can get too close to somebody's world building. Like right. all you did really was change all the names, and that if it's appreciably, if it's recognizably the same, even though the words themselves are different, they actually can. Um, it may not. It, it it actually can meet a very specific definition of plagiarism, um, and it can be considered copyright violation if it's too recognizable. So. If you had a magical school with four houses with four animals as their symbol, but you named them all differently, and you had an evil guy who split his soul into seven pieces, but they weren't called four corruptions, the structure of the novel um, and the world building is now too similar, recognizably similar to Harry Potter. To Harry Potter. Unless you call it it a parody. Yeah, parody, and then you can use all the words directly. So... I mean, so the question, so I think that in terms of like where, where I would draw the line is, I don't know. I mean, um, synthetic, um, synthetic is, um, in a lot of ways, derivative of other, other works and other thoughts and other ideas, even some of my own. Um, but if someone used my idea in fandom, I would appreciate credit. You know, like heads up, say, "Hey, Kara wrote this awesome thing, and I'm I was really inspired by it, and I 
this is what I've done. This is what I did. Um, but I wouldn't get bent if I saw my concept outlined in an original novel for pay on Amazon. I'd sue if it was too similar. Because there are certain elements in synthetics that are very unique to synthetic put together. And if all those elements came together in an original work that didn't have my name on it, that's plagiarism. Now, if someone wrote a book about humans transferring themselves into synthetic forms, okay, no. But if they transferred themselves into synthetic forms and escaped humanity because humanity wanted to kill them on Earth and they ended up on a ship that's housed in an asteroid headed for a planet, okay, you've gone too far. <laughs> right? Because there's too many elements for it to be a coincidence or to even be inspiration. It becomes a matter of um, outright theft. But even again, I probably wouldn't win if I did sue. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times when it comes to ideas and world building, um, is it something is feeling a little bit too close to being my story with name changes? I would find that really offensive, even if they credited me, because that's like remixing my work with another, with, with, it's like, it's like, I don't know, stripping off a layer and putting on a new coat of paint and calling it a new story. Um, so I would find it offensive, but there wouldn't really be anything to do about it. Um, but you I'd know, be super offended by a remix. Re- remixes piss me yeah, off. They do. Um, but you know, so if if it's if it's my story under the hood with cosmetic changes like fandom and names, that's really bordering on play, plagiarism. And if they've used a lot of my words, it is outright plagiarism. And they could be plagiarizing the world if I've done original world building and they've kept the structure exactly the same. So once you cross the line to plagiarism, I find it kind of offensive. Well, a lot offensive when it is. But a lot, one thing that can diffuse things a lot, because I don't mind people being inspired by my ideas and even using, you know, an idea, not a whole story, but an idea wholesale, is just credit what your inspiration source was. It diffuses the hell out of people being pissed off when you say, I was inspired by this thing that I read and I wanted to do something with it. Fine. Um, but, you know, in general, um, Yeah, I, it's 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 just it's kind of it's kind of one of those things where it's just like where's the line? And I think it's when you cross the line straight into plagiarism. And there is a line, you know. And um, the fact of the matter is, is I really don't think plagiarism can be accidental. Yes, you can be inspired by somebody and not remember who they are, but if you're using their words in the same order that they use the words, unless you have a documented photographic memory that apparently has the inability to recognize um, plagiarism, I'm going to assume you did it on purpose. Yeah. Just saying. And even if, and even the world, like I said, the world building elements can also be plagiarized. Because if you take not just a, a piece of world building here or there, but the entire world, and you put in new characters and write a whole new story, but you and you don't credit. You say, "Oh, I created this thing." Um, that is that to me. I would call that plagiarism too, 
it's like I created this world and you don't say where you got this world. And even actually, I don't know that I would, that would just be kind of weird. But, you know, I probably actually would still be like, hey, hey go do your thing. Um, as long as you don't actually use my words. But if you claimed it as your own, that would really upset me. A remix is when they take your story and reverse it. Like, it would be like if someone took, um, oh, in duality, uh, it's a Harry Hermione fic that I wrote. Harry is a sentinel, and Hermione is a guide, and Harry has been um, uh, potioned for more than a decade to hide the fact that he's a sentinel. A remix of that would be if Hermione was the Sentinel and she had been potioned to hide the fact that she was a Sentinel. And then all the events that I wrote would play out with her instead of him. That would be a remix. Um, if someone wrote a fanfic of that story, they would just write Harry Potter as a Sentinel because I inspired that in them. I don't know. I mean, it, would, it, it wouldn't be the same. And the thing is, is I don't care if somebody writes fanfic of my fanfic. But what I would say is that absolutely no one should expect me to read it. Because I've had that experience and I don't want it again. There are people who write in Ties That Bind and they're connected to Ties That Bind with permission and I have them linked. If you see something written in the Ties That Bind verse that isn't linked on my page, it's because they didn't ask me and I'm not involved in the project and I've never read it and I had no desire to read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but I don't... As a writer, I honestly would find fanfic of my original fic flattering. I wouldn't read it, but I'd find it very flattering. Um, yeah, fanfic of my fanfic, I'm like, okay, I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it seems kind of weird. Is, the thing about fanfic of fanfic is I, I don't know where that starts. I don't know where it. Because fanfic of fanfic would be like, let's say you say somebody had an epic, um, and you said. Okay, like send me to what might have been and said, okay, I'm going to do a what if in book four and create a new story based upon the first three books. And I mean, yeah, that's, that's fan fiction. That, that is definitely what fan fiction does. But for some reason, fanfic of fanfic feels weird. I, don't know. I mean, it feels weird. It feels weird. I mean, I w- you can't say no to that because that's what fan fiction is. But, you know, not well, you can. You absolutely can say no. It doesn't mean that other people, that people can't do it anyway. You can say no to whatever you want. Um, One but, thing I would find know, really like, offensive is if, if someone took my work and claimed to write a sequel to something I wrote or claimed to continue it. Like if some asshole put out the season two of Tangled Destinies on my behalf. Yeah, and that's what... And you that's could not measure how furious I would be. Right. And <laughs> could I do anything about fight. it? No. No. Except, you know, shun them and talk shit about them on my Public podcast shaming. for a year. Public shaming would be would be featured, yes. Um, and I wouldn't fuss at you at all if you trolled them. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, and that's the fight I got into with somebody this week is I said that my stories were not up. And I just said my stories are not up for adoption and you can't go write a sequel of it. And that, that infuriated one of my readers that I would make that statement that my stories were not up for adoption um, and that people can't go and continue them. And she, her, her, you know, um, her perspective is that because I write fan fiction, I should be okay with that. Um, someone adopting a story without my permission and continuing it or writing a sequel, writing the next part, whatever. And I said, I can't stop you from writing fanfic of my fanfic, but I am saying no to the adoption thing. It's just a simple thing. My stories are not for adoption. Can I stop you? No. Could I even get your work taken down off an archive? No, I couldn't. That's not the point. All I said was my stories are not up for adoption. That's it. I'm gonna, and it made her so uh, furious. On that last point, I think that if someone wrote a sequel to Tangled Destinies and put it up on AO3, that I would be able to get it taken down. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> Maybe the archive wouldn't take it down for me, but I bet your ass I could get the author to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but it that is so, it's just, I, I mean, it's like one of the things is that it's like fandom, fandom is based around a set of agreement realities, right? It's based on the honor system. There's a lot of things outside of straight-out plagiarism. Um, that people do or not like people people put things in comments like no one's welcome to use this idea and their idea often used when I see stuff like that is something completely unoriginal so I'm a little bit perplexed when I see those kinds of comments um, but so most of what we do is based on the honor system right like especially stuff like we're not going to try to sell our fan fiction I mean it's all stuff we we, we operate on the honor system and fandom and one of the kind of in, implicit things the things we kind of agree to in fandom, at least most of us do, is that you aren't going to adopt and, and write a sequel to or quote-unquote finish someone else's work if they don't give you permission to. Um, and yet some people's perspective is that because it's fandom, if they want to continue your work and you're not getting on and doing it fast enough, that they should be able to finish your work for you or write a sequel to a story that you don't want a sequel to. Um, and, it, and, it, and they go post it and say, hey, I wrote a sequel to this story of Jilly's go me, enjoy it, I can't actually stop them from doing that. But the honor system says, you know, that most people are going to honor it. Most writers are going to honor it when I say that I don't want my, my stories are not up for adoption. Um, so that somebody would get so bent out of shape about that statement that I, when I say my stories are not up it's for adoption. It's because they want to do so, it and you said no. Right. They exist in a world where they get to do whatever they want and they don't like being told no. Or they've already done um, it and now they feel like they can't post it. Right. So um, I'm going to tell you a little story about that. What might have been, in case you're not aware, is my word baby. If I have a word baby on my site, it is what might have been. Um, it, is, uh, it is the foundation of my Stargate fic. It is um, my headcanon. For a lot of things, it's the it's where Atlantean Legacy was birthed. It's where Sentinels of Atlantis was birthed. The characterization that I pulled from those projects is what I mean. Um, 
And during my one million word celebration, someone wrote a future fic for Sebastian. And Sebastian is my original character. Now, why they would take my original character, I don't know. But they did. And this isn't linked on my site anymore. Um, and I don't know if it's available online anymore, to be perfectly honest. Um, and they wrote him falling in love for the first time. It was meant to be a gift, right? It was meant to be a gift during my one million celebration. All some of my readers got together and wrote stories for me, and some of them are they're really cute. You know, me in the mountain. You know, <laughs> or Jack O'Neill meeting Gibbs, and, and there are a couple others, and they're great and they're fun. But that one, it was like getting slapped in the face because they took my they took they took my Sebastian and and they. I can't even articulate it. I can't even articulate it. Uh, it was like, I, I can't believe you You took that from me. I can't believe you thought that was okay to take from me. It felt deeply personal and ugly, and I can't explain it any better than that. I was, I, I just like, I could not believe that this person who was uh, was a fan of my work, who was on my site regularly, who was so inspired by my work that they were willing to write something as a gift for me for my one million celebration, and they took that from me. Am I out of line? <laughs> For finding that. No, I mean, if it, sometimes, I mean, sometimes something just crosses the line, and it's like, it, it, it is an emotional line a lot of times. Um, but original characters is really, um, there's something there. Somebody wrote me about a couple of original characters of mine, asked if they could borrow them from a story, um, and I don't mean like, um, like put them in their fan fiction and say, hey, these are Jilly's characters. They want to write a story like based on those two characters, just those two characters. And I just got stroked out. I was like, are you crazy? No, no. I had a reader email me once and I have a, if you've browsed my EAD or my sneak peeks on my website, you might have seen a excerpt called a pale horse. And it's a story about John Shepard being a Spartan from the halo series. And I'm deep, big, deep halo fan. Um, and uh, I'd written this AU. And, I, you know, the thing is, is I have a lot of material that no one's ever seen for this. I have two composition notebooks full of world building for mixing the Halo verse with Stargate, which was not easy, by the way. Um, and if, you've had, if you know anything about the Halo mo- uh, games, you would know that it is not. Of course, you can also watch some Halo movies on um, Netflix if you're curious. That um, They have some series that they have a series of um, shorts and stuff. Anyways... What I'm getting at is it was a lot of work, and I put out a pale horse to um, talk about it, to 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 demonstrate what I was currently thinking on it, you know, just kind of experimenting with it. And I had a reader email me and ask me if they could take it since I hadn't worked on it in so long and continue John's story. I wanted to write back, well, do you want to send me your fucking address so I can send you the goddamn written material I've written for it? I didn't. But I wanted to. 
competition notebook is 100 pages front and back. I've got two of those written in full for that series. It's my baby. It's my world building. It's, it's, it's not ready. I'm, I'm not ready to write it. I put that out as a present to my readers, and she asked if she can have it. I said no, and she told me I was selfish. Well, and that's—I think that's that's the issue of is—is—is is, is when somebody wants to do an unauthorized sequel or finish a story that you haven't finished or whatever, they are asking if they can have your thing. And some people want to give their thing away. I have talked to authors who are like, I love this story, but I got to get away from it. And I am at this point, if I can find an author I trust, I am willing to let this go because um, I, just for whatever their reasons are, they would rather see it finished in somebody else's hands than finish it themselves. And that's fine. I, I don't think I could ever do that. But if, if that works for somebody, that is great. But somebody coming to you and saying, can I have this thing? And that's what they're asking. Can I have it and do what I want with it? And it's not fan fiction because they're asking to go and continue your thing, write a sequel to your thing that they're saying is your thing and for you to give something away. And, you know, I cut that off at the pass because I just didn't want the question because I was getting the question. And I cut it off at the pass by just saying no, no. But it really makes some people angry. And you can't stop them. You can't say you can't make them not do it. They can go off and do whatever they can go off do whatever the fuck they want to do. Um, but I can deeply disapprove of it and publicly shame them if they do put it out in public. And is, um, how did I deal with it, Sarah? I just I said thank you, and I put the link up on my site because it was hosted on Live Journal, and I never read it again. What was I supposed to say? This was my fan giving me a present on my One Million Word Celebration Day. I will say it wasn't nearly as hurtful as what that asshole did to my Maddie in his his terrible BDSM AU of ties that bind. Um on rough trade he did it during my challenge on my site i'm hosting this bullshit and i hadn't read it and i had like four or five people email me and say you need to go read this because and lady holder if she's here she'd tell you i angry cried for an hour and a half it was it was rough stuff it was heinous So somebody asked about what would be fanfic of fanfic, and I want to give her. I thought of a really concrete example of what that would look like. Um, if somebody wanted to write um, fanfic of emergence, and I don't mean because my universe is open, anybody can use my world building and go and do their thing. But if they want to write fanfic of emergence itself, my story, what that would look like, I would think, is let's say somebody wanted Tony with somebody else. Or maybe they wanted to remove, they didn't want to do, deal with the Ascended Beings plot line. Um, that maybe they wrote a version of Emergence for Tony Lee's NCIS. And he chooses to mate with Jack O'Neill instead or something. That, to me, would be fan fiction of my fanfic. And I'd be, I wouldn't read it because he, I, I wouldn't be able to help but compare and be mentally cataloging the things the person got wrong in, their, in the way they executed the world building. But that would be fine. 
would be fine because that would be a legitimate Matt is a sacred puppy. Story. That is a sacred puppy. I agree. But that would be a legitimate I would say, story. Honestly, Ties That Bind is a fanfic of Zant's BDSM world. You don't agree? You've read both. If you don't agree, that's fine. I'm just curious. Um, I guess, I mean, no, not really. I guess because, um, you, you use, it's, it's, you're using her world building. Um, I used so her concept can, and expanded the world building to suit myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You use, you, so you, she, you said, Hey, can I use this concept? And, um, and then you, then you, you know, like you said, you expanded the world building and, and wrote something completely different. Um, I would, the reason why I say it, I don't think it's fanfic of fanfic, um, you credit her for inspiration, but I don't think it's fanfic of her fanfic because there's no real plot similarities at all between just the pairing, stories. just the one pairing. Yeah. yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. Yeah. Well, I do, I do try to acknowledge when somebody inspires me if I remember who they are. It's hard to forget Xanth. <laughs> But for yeah. the life of me, I can't figure out which author it was that inspired me for my Cabbage Pack fic because there's so many of them that were in the start, and I don't know which one I read first that made me so geared up to write it. So, okay, <laughs> I just don't remember. And sometimes, and like sometimes you're not like I have no problem with getting credit for inspiration. Because even if you're not using somebody's idea or anything close to their idea, you can just kind of go, oh, yeah, this person really inspired me to go here. Um, and it's just, I think it's really good for authors to hear that they've been inspirational. Um, I think the first Tell Me Somebody Else fic I wrote, maybe not the first, but the first time I wrote Tony Steve McGarrett, I definitely credited Shade Shifter for inspiring me to want to write that pairing. And there's no similarities between our stories at all. But she like totally opened my eyes to the mothership, um, and I was like, and so I could, cannot write that pairing. And also, she got because she she writes um, Tony with, with a variety of people too. I, you know, she kind of got me into that getting away from the, the you know the fandom OTT for Tony, which is Tony Gibbs for the most part, and. Um, so she kind of opened my eyes. So I do consider her very inspirational in that way, even though I'm not drawing on any of her ideas or anything like that for the story. So I think that when it comes to inspiration or even borrowing of ideas, credit goes a really, really long way to keeping authors from being annoyed. It's when I think it's when people feel like that they've been, you know, that their hard work is being used for, by somebody else without acknowledging their hard work. Um, that it feels kind of skeevy. It's not even a sense. It just feels kind of like, ugh. Emotionally, yeah. that's the feel. Kind of, ugh. But there are, sometimes there are ideas that are so prevalent in the fandom, that are so, you know, big in the fandom, that there is no finding a source um, to um, to credit. And that's perfectly okay. Because eventually these concepts become more of a trope. And yeah. you can't, <laughs> when it becomes a trope, there's no getting it back. You know, yeah. So once it's trope tastic, it's that's just it's it's all. Because I actually I had somebody. Um, this was this was my 
this is my big example of somebody going after me about I should have credited somebody for something. And it was that I should have, um, it was when I was writing Journey Home, somebody pained me, I talked about this in the podcast before, and really ripped me a new one for not crediting Kira for my world building um, because I used her concepts of prides and stuff. Um, and I just kind of, like, I head tilted to almost to the point that I sprained something and then sent them links to a bunch of stories that used prides that predated your entry into fandom and told me to kiss my ass. <laughs> it's a trope, right? A I trope. thought it was okay. a trope. Okay. It is a because it is a trope. So what I, and then later on, once I calmed down, I'm like what this person was advertising with that email was that they only read you. <laughs> They never oh, bless her heart. They, 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 that's implicit, right? If they think really that, that one of the big tropes in the fandom um, is mine, like, considering like, I came like in, this. I'm a latter-day Sentinel writer. Yeah. Right. Um, what I would say to you guys, if you see something like that and you're concerned, email me before you bitch at a writer. I'd really appreciate it. I appreciate your support and your and your thoughtfulness and your desire to defend me. But I'd really, um, it would be helpful for everybody if you ask first. <laughs> you can save, save hurt feelings and temper tantrums. <laughs> but, you know, I got hit yeah. on, um, I got hit on my girl McKay, um, even though I, uh, girl McKay is not new in fandom, um, but I was told that I had a lot of similarities with a story that was on Rough Trade at the time um, and that I should give that person credit. Never mind the fact that my story was published eight, nine months before that Rough Trade took place. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I'm kind of waiting for someone to tell me I should credit for Revenant. I'm waiting for it. I hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that doesn't happen. But people see something from one source, and then sometimes they don't even bother checking a date when they see another source um, and say, because I've gotten pinged with a couple of NCIS stories. It says, you know, I can't believe you didn't credit so-and-so for this. I go, did you check the dates of my posting? Really? Because I predated them, the person you're accusing me of cheating on by about two years. Right. <laughs> um I mean, and that's really simple. So, like, before making an accusation, um, check it yeah. out. But while, but why I'm waiting for Revenant is that when I was writing Revenant, I was repeatedly hammered on during that challenge, both in comments and in emails, people asking me where I got the concept from, because it couldn't, I guess, possibly be mine in their head. I mean, it, it was so bad that I actually stopped writing. people asking about the original source material. If it was a fucking fusion, I would have listed it as a fusion. But they assumed it was an original concept I'd picked up as fan fiction and put into my work, that it couldn't possibly be my own. And I got like, I don't know, 20 or 25 emails asking for the original source material because they wanted to read it. And there's already one person doing a Revenant AU. And I think they credited me. I don't remember. It was, it, it was on Rough Trade. Um, yeah, but I fully expect someone to come back and tell me to credit that person. <laughs> just, I see it coming. As soon as it, as soon as it hits AO3, someone's going to tell me. 
Yeah, yeah, it was you, Pen. Someone's going to tell me <laughs> to credit you on my story. I, I see it coming. So people do that, and they don't check, you know. Or and weird thing is sometimes even the credit is already there. Um, well, I said the sometimes credit you there. credited me for something, and they and, and you got hit for it anyway, like you didn't. Yeah, they, they said you need to credit Kira for you know stealing her ideas. I was like, uh, well, if I was stealing her ideas, I wouldn't credit. That's kind of contradictory, but whatever. But I actually did. It's like all over. And not only did I credit her, but Kira had a blanket permission policy where you know. Leave me, you know, credit me, but I'm not going to chase you down. It's kind of what it says. Um, but she and I talked about it ahead of time, and I asked her. I even gave her the idea of a work in progress that nobody else has seen, a right. different version of it, because there was one and version I, that I had, right? Yeah. Yeah, you did. You had you had one version of it already in a story, but you'd come up with something else for another story that was a take on it, and you said, "Oh, well, I have this take in another story. Why don't you do this?" And I liked it. I thought that would be so perfect. And you said, use it. And I said, you know, Kira gave me permission to use this concept, and I really appreciate it. And actually, that's the way I said it. And I still got pain from people saying, you need to credit Kira for using this idea. So I was like, um. I did, bitch. Um, <laughs> okay. But that's one thing I don't actually worry about is plagiarism be, being unnoticed because if somebody plagiarizes me, I'm going to get some emails about it. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I can guarantee it. I might get screenshots, downloads, compare some documents. I'll tell you what's going to happen. But it's not going to be unknown to me. Oh, oh, that reminds me. I did get an email today. Because, you know, last night in the podcast, I said that me having an attitude problem hadn't hurt my audience. And I got an email from this woman that said that she hadn't read my work since um started writing um, Harry and Hermione and had been so arrogant about writing Het. But she listens to your podcast? Right, so I said, but I said, okay, that's 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 fine. I want to thank you for listening to my podcast, though. Appreciate it. <laughs> what? So if you're listening, idea. bitch, stop listening to my podcast too. Come on now. <laughs> go all go all in on boycotting me, please. I would really appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for your advertising dollars. I appreciate it. It's ridiculous. I did cop an attitude about posting Het because I knew I knew when I started doing it that I was going to get hit from Slash readers because there's that big divide between Slash and Het readers. And I decided to cut it off with the past and say this is what's going to happen and you don't have to like it, but this is what's going to happen and I don't care what you think because I don't. And in the end, I ended up getting more shit from Het readers than I did Slash readers. Because when I shifted back into writing Slash, um, it was a Stargate story, I got much grief. I don't know why people think that um, Slash writers are only allowed to write Slash, or Het writers are only allowed to write Het. I don't understand your point of view. Of course, I also get that when I move around in fandoms. Did you have to pick up a new fandom? I really didn't want you to. I didn't want you to abandon my fandom. And that's how it sounds to me in my head. 
when you sent me an email like yeah, that? I, yeah, I really Money did. Ass. I really did. Shit. I really did have to do that. God spoke to me and he told me to write in Teen Wolf. I just, I feel like you need to go with me on this. I don't think anybody buy that since it's pretty since it's pretty well known I'm an atheist, which is also apparently offensive because I've gotten shit about that dude. Well, because be I had said someone an said that writing BDSM wasn't Christian, and I wrote back and said I'm not a Christian. And then she wrote back and asked me, "Is this where are you Jewish?" And I said, "Nope, I'm not Muslim. I'm not a Hindu." <laughs> I listed like every religion I could think of, and she she wrote back and she said, "Well, do you have Jesus in your heart?" I said, "I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have Jesus in my heart. I'm an atheist." And she told me I was going to hell, and she stopped reading my work. Mission accomplished. Oh, they don't read the head. Or they don't read the slash. They complain that I'm writing it. That I'm wasting my time writing something they're not going to read when I should be writing what they want to read. Oh, but they will also read things that they aren't interested in. So they can comment and go, well, this was well written or whatever, but I just don't know why you abandoned the pairing fandom, whatever. You were so much better over there. I'm mean, like, okay. Well, I responded to one of those stories once. So this was well written and all. You know, I don't know why you couldn't have just stuck with this pairing. I responded. Okay, well, <laughs> glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> and fuck you very much. We got a minute and 19 seconds left. I, you know, honestly, uh, and we did a whole podcast about the ungrateful 1%, and it is a very small percentage of fandom, but unfortunately they're also the loudest. They are. They do have a really big whopping set of vocal cords. They They just have to... It's always the asshole. It's always, always the asshole. Good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. (laughs)